listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Before I read today's scripture, I want to introduce Joe and Kim Clough. Uh, The Cloughs are on a year-long furlough from their work in Kenya, uh, where they serve in leadership development, catalyzing disciple-making movements across the country. And if you listen to their podcasts, then you know their work is having an international impact. I'm excited to welcome Joe to the platform this morning to deliver our 2020 GoTime keynote address. Uh, But before Joe comes, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Today's scripture reading comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 4, verses 27 through 39. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or, why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. But meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Don't you, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Faith Church. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, as Joey noted, uh, all the cool missionary guys wear, wear gray shirts. Although you didn't wear the khaki pants, Jeff. Andy, you're looking great. All right. Uh, my name is Joe Clough, and as uh, Joey said, uh, Kim, my wife, and I, we serve in Kenya. And I want to thank you, Faith Church, on behalf of all of the missionaries involved here during Go Time for your remarkable care and concern. As I travel around America, I have never seen a church that has this degree of missions awareness and involvement. So if you, um, as a member of Faith Church, are not involved in a missionary care team or on the the GO team, uh, Faith Church's mission uh, committee, um, I would encourage you to do so, not just because we missionaries covet your prayer and concern, but also so that you can experience what an excellent church program looks like. Today we're going to go through John chapter 4. We're going to start at the very beginning. So if you have your Bibles, please open that with us, John chapter 4. This is the familiar story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. And we're going to start right at the start. 
in verse 1. Verses 1 to 3. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Right from the beginning of this amazing narrative, we see Jesus empowering his disciples. In this particular case, he's doing it by having them officiate the sacrament of baptism. Paul does a similar thing. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, where Paul says to the church at Corinth, yeah, I baptized a few of you, but that's really not my role. That's, that's your role. So from the beginning, we see Jesus, he's, he's doing the, practicing the priesthood of all believers even before that was a thing. Do we do that in Kenya? As we go through this text, what I would like to do is, is bring up some examples of what I've seen happen in Kenya so that we can use them as a foil uh, or a counterexample uh, as we consider what God may have us do here in central Indiana. So do we in Kenya practice this habit of Jesus empowering his disciples by having them do baptisms? No, we do not, sadly. It's interesting, in Kenya, if you get baptized into a legally recognized church, you can get a baptismal card, which actually historically has uh, been a legally recognized form of identification in Kenya. Because of that, some corrupt pastors would sell baptismal cards under the table to supplement their income, and so the denominational heads of the various registered churches cracked down on baptism and only would let certain select people officiate baptisms uh, in order to stop their own leaders from being corrupt and in so doing limited the empowerment of the disciples. My view is that if we say we are going to follow Jesus, then we should follow Jesus. Be that as it may. Let's continue on. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's noon, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus always had a purpose for everything he did. And here he is enacting what I call the principle of subversive meekness. Whenever Jesus entered a context, he usually did it from a place of need. He, after all, was a homeless, working-class rabbi. And of course, when we look at the incarnation itself, he came as a helpless baby laying in a manger. We get sometimes distracted by the amazing miracles that we did, and we, we forget the fact that he modeled 
a lifetime ministry of meekness, of need. Whenever he entered that context, he makes this overt in Luke chapter 10, where he sends out the 72, and he tells them at the beginning of that uh, chapter, Luke chapter 10, verses 3, 2 and 3 and following, following, he says, don't take extra sandals, your money bag, backpack, none of that stuff. Just go. Look, I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. Do I do this in Kenya? Well, I've tried, but no, not really. Of course, when I go out and do any door-to-door evangelism, I usually have some change in my pocket. I've got my cell phone on, in my pocket as well and with mobile money on it. If I'm going for several days, I'll have a small backpack that I have my toiletry kit in and uh, a power bank for my cell phone and some clean underwear, of course, just like my mom told me to carry. (laughs) I want to understand this principle, this subversive meekness that Jesus always practiced and coached his disciples to practice, but I don't yet. I've prayed that God will reveal it to me, but I have asked him to do so gently because I fear of, I'm afraid of the discomfort that may result. Continuing on, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? We have compound cultural differences. Jew, Samaritan, man, woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus immediately engages her in a spiritual conversation. Jesus embraces his otherness. He is not of this world, and neither are we. Therefore, as we go out in our day-to-day lives, it's a little bit more awkward, of course, during this time of COVID, but as we go out in our day-to-day lives, we should also be a spiritual people engaging in spiritual conversations. Be weird. I was um, doing a training about six hours outside of Nairobi, and it was a five-day training, Monday through Friday. Um, My hosts uh, and I had arranged for uh, the work to continue each of those five days, but our plans on Wednesday fell through. And so my hosts, being wonderful, hospitable Kenyan men of God, they uh, hurriedly called around to their network of pastors and found a pastor friend of a pastor friend who would be willing to host us on a short notice the very next day so that we that I would have something to do on Wednesday I wasn't really all that concerned about having the Wednesday off but but they did not want me to feel put out so we found uh, they found this this pastor friend of a pastor friend and we made arrangements to go on Wednesday morning to his place a place named Kip Tech We arrived at that place around 10 o'clock in the morning and greeted him, the pastor, and by about 11 o'clock, a handful of mamas came and joined us together with some young people, some young adults, 
Altogether, there were about 12 of us there. So I did a short training from about 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., and we talked about uh, disciple-making and evangelism, all good stuff. There was no pressure on me because I kind of viewed it as a, a, a throwaway training. I mean, I didn't expect anything to come of it. At 3 o'clock, we ended up and we took some chai together, as is culturally appropriate, and then around 4 o'clock, we began to uh, get our things ready to head back to where we were staying. But one of my hosts, Pastor Joseph, said to me, he said, hey, Joe, um, we're at the bottom of this, this mountain, this hill here. At the top of this mountain, there's a scenic overlook that a lot of the locals like to go to and take picnics to. Would you like to climb up and see it? So I said, sure. We started making our way up the mountainside there, and about halfway up, we stalked, stopped as a group, and we were just kind of chatting together. And Joseph looked over, and he noticed about 70 yards away, there were two mamas sitting there in the grass. He looked at me, and he said, Hey, Joel, uh, you know, you just spent four hours talking about evangelism and disciple-making. Should we go share the gospel with those women? I said, sure. I mean, what else was I going to say? No, you know. <laughs> uh, so I said, sure, and we began to make our way over to them, the two of us, um, Joseph and myself. And as I went, I uttered a silent prayer. I said, Lord, okay, I know these strategies, these evangelism things to say, but I don't want to rely on them. You're in charge here, Lord. You use my tongue and have me say whatever you want me to say to these women so that you are glorified. We greeted the mamas, and uh, Joseph said, hey, the uh, white guy wants to say something, and he stepped back, and I stepped forward. I looked at the women, and I could tell by their faces that they had lived hard lives. I said, I want you to know that God loves you so much. He loves you so much that he's counted every hair on your heads. Even more, he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you could be his child. I just want you to know that God loves you so much. The women looked at us, and then they stood up, and tears welled up in their eyes. And just as they stood up, the others of our group came and joined us. The pastor from that place uh, saw what was happening and took me aside and said, uh, Joe, I, I know one of these women. Uh, how about I talk to them and, and you guys continue up the mountainside? I said, fine. And we did, and the outlook was lovely. Have spiritual conversations. If we say that we're going to follow Jesus, then we should follow Jesus. Embrace your otherness. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, we are fools in the eyes of the world. That's the biblical term for us. We're fools for Christ. So let's be foolish. Now, did the women, did the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, did she get Jesus' spiritual conversation? Let's look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She didn't get it at all. Went right over her head. Jesus, being the master disciple maker, doesn't miss a beat. 
Let's continue on. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Wow, this is rich. This is real. Here we have a John setting up a, a tension that's happening between these two people. This is a dramatic tension because we're not sure if the woman is going to come to the light or if she's going to remain in darkness. And she does something very human because Jesus realizes, verse 15, that she's not catching his spiritual conversation. So he dives right in and says, okay, let's talk about temporal concerns, namely your messed up personal life. And she does whatever human does when the light shines on our messed up personal lives, she recoils, and she engages in some vague discussion about arcane theology. John predicts that this will happen. He foreshadows it in the previous chapter, chapter 3, starting with verse 19, where he says, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what's going to happen with the woman? Is she going to come to the light, or is she going to remain in darkness? Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The dramatic tension is relieved. We see the woman start to move to the light. She is what we call in the business a person of peace. Now, we see these persons of peace throughout the New Testament. Uh, we, other examples would be the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5, Lydia, Cornelius, the Philippian jailer. A person of peace has four characteristics. Number one, they're prepared by God. Number two, to receive the messenger. Number three, to receive the message. And number four, to share that message with their social network. That's exactly what the woman did here. Now we see the person of peace more explicitly portrayed in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 6. There it's called a, per, a man of peace, but as we see in this narrative, many times it's a woman, so we say person of peace. 
as we go out and make disciples and do evangelism, we do not look for a single convert. We look for these persons of peace that God has prepared so that we can give them the message and they can share it and their whole network can, Lord willing, come to faith in Christ. John chapter 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I was uh, involved in a training that was conducted by a beloved friend of mine named Rich. Now, when Rich does his level one disciple-making trainings, they're three-day trainings. And uh, what happens is during the trainings, the morning of each of those three successive days, Rich's team introduces a uh, skill of disciple-making. And then in the afternoon, we go out two by two into the harvest and we practice that skill. In this particular training, it occurred on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Usually Thursdays are my prayer and fasting days, and I decided that I would go ahead and fast on that Thursday, even though I was involved in this training. I was paired up with a wonderful Kenyan pastor by the name of Peter, and we, uh, after lunch, uh, I just took a cup of chai because I was fasting, we went out into the harvest, Peter and I. First, we went and walked to this bus stop. There were about a half a dozen people there, and we engaged in some conversation, spiritual conversation with them and shared the gospel. They were more amused than anything else. Then we walked over to the other side of the road where we saw three laborers who were shoveling gravel, and we began to talk to them. One of the laborers seemed really interested, but the boss came and chased us away. Then we walked to a, a gas station and talked to the mechanic there. He said that, well, he was a Christian. He went to church usually. But his colleague, his co-worker, was a total pagan and really needed Jesus. So we should talk to him. And so we asked him where his colleague was. And he said, well, he's, he's away. He'll be back in two hours we th said thank you very much and continued on our way. We walked down below the gas station along the road and there was a young man coming from the other direction. And we stopped him and began to talk with him. And I'll never forget, he didn't even really look us in the eye, he just collapsed. Uh, thankfully, there was this big lump of concrete from a, a broken culvert that was there that he could collapse onto, otherwise he would have landed in the dirt beside the road. And he sat down and shook his head and he said, go ahead and tell me because my life doesn't work. And Peter and I looked at each other and we looked at the young man and we shared the gospel with him. And we prayed with him. We gave him next steps. We got his phone contact so we could do follow-up the very next day. By this time, it was time for us to return to the church where the training was being held, so we, we uh, left him and started to make our way back. And I could tell that, that Peter was really agitated. And I, on the way back, I said, Peter, what's up? He said, Joe, did you see that? And I said, well, yeah, what do you mean? And he said, Joe, I'm a pastor. I spent all my time managing a capital campaign for the church building and writing sermons that no one will remember on Monday morning. 
This is what I should be doing. Did you see that young man? Did you see that? Later on that evening, I returned home and broke my fast and realized that I had not been hungry all day. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Verse 35, this is the central scripture of this go time week. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. The fields are white for the harvest in Kenya. I'm going to ask you now, though, Faith Church, do you believe Jesus' words here about Indianapolis? Do you believe that in this Nora area there are thousands of people who are ready to come to Christ if someone would just tell them yes or no? Do you believe that there are possibly hundreds of thousands of lost people in central Indiana who are ready to come to Christ if someone would just share? Yes or no? I want to continue on in this narrative a little bit more, and then in a couple of minutes we'll return to this scripture as we consider its application. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. Here we see the master disciple maker, Jesus, staying in that place to solidify the disciple making efforts so that there is a greater harvest. A few minutes ago, I told you the story of my time in Kip Tech, where on the mountainside, the, the two women uh, came to Christ. Did I do this there? Did I stay there for a time to make sure that the disciple-making efforts would be solidified and that there would be a greater harvest? No, I did not. I failed. I punted. If I say that I follow Christ, then I should follow Christ. But when I was there on the hillside at the time, you know, I, I, I had on my mind the training that I was doing the next two days, Thursday and Friday, because that was the main event. That's why I came there, right? Wrong. It wasn't the main event. The main event was those two mamas standing there with tears in their eyes, looking from pastor to bishop to pastor to missionary, wishing that someone would tell them what they needed to do to be saved. When I reached Nairobi back home at the end of the week, I was reflecting upon the week's event, and it, I immediately realized my sin in this case. And I repented of it, which is always a good thing. <clears throat> and <laughs> 
I tried to uh, call up to my contacts in that area and, and track down the pastor there from Kip Tech, who I did not know, just so that I could do some follow-up via phone. Uh, but uh, the I was unable to do so, and I never did reach him. So I've prayed to God that by his grace, someday he will grant me the privilege of seeing those two women in heaven. Now I want to return to verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. I've told a couple of stories of Kenya. I want to talk now about Indianapolis. Um, and what I would like to do, if you'll allow me, is I would like to ask, are, are there any of Faith Church's elder board here in the room this morning? If so, please raise your hand. Okay. Well, we do have a couple of you. Thank you so very much. Um, I want to commend you for your hard work and your ministry. Um, and I was recently looking over the strategic plan that you developed, I believe, starting a couple of years ago, um, and commend you for that, too. It really shows, the thoroughness of it really shows the care and concern that you have for this body and making sure that it continues to shine the light of Christ in this place. Um, there are a couple of things about that strategic plan that I would like to mention, and the rest of you who are not elders, you may eavesdrop on this. Um, I, don't want, I don't say this in order to single out the elders, but as, as someone whose job, whose ministry is strategizing on how to get the gospel into context, um, there are a couple, two things that, that come to my mind, and if you'll allow me, I, I address these humbly because I know that you elders do a sacred and great work. The first thing is, when I look at the strategic plan, I would like to suggest that, that prayer have greater emphasis in that. Um, why do I say that? you can legitimately tell me, hey, Joe, I, we don't see prayer in John chapter 4. Why are you bringing prayer up? And it's true. We don't have Jesus, you know, stopping and praying in this particular text. However, there are some other texts that are very close to John 4, 35, namely Matthew 9, 37, 38, and Luke chapter 10, verse 2, where Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest field. I really like how the ESV puts that. It says, pray earnestly, because in the Greek, the Greek word there means beg, implore, beseech. Jesus tells his disciples, us, to beg the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest field. That's prayer. That's that's seeking the face of God and doing his will. So that's the first thing, um, elders. I, I humbly request that you consider, if you've not already done so, and if you've done so, uh, you have my sincere apology, if you've not already done so, to make prayer central to the strategic plan, not only for us to be men of prayer, but also to, to mobilize prayer amongst the body for 
laborers in the harvest here in Indianapolis. Secondly, a word was there in the strategic plan that jumped out from me because it's, it's gold, it's a keeper, and that was lab, as in laboratory. Now, when I think laboratory, I think of the, the great um, scientific or military labs of the past century, like Skunk Works or DARPA, that come out with these amazing things like the internet, or in the case of Skunk Works, uh, the SR-71 Blackbird. I, I shouldn't get too uh, violent with you all, but that airplane was invented more than, what, 60 years ago? And it could simply outfly the missiles that were shot at it. It, it just amazes me that this team of people, this lab, did such a thing. And so when I saw the word lab in your strategic plan, I said, yeah, yeah, this is gold. If this church, if it doesn't already have one, or every church in America had a, a harvest lab, so to speak, a small group of people who were passionate about the Great Commission saying, how can we reach these fields that are white for the harvest in our context? Who would be on such a lab? Well, a couple of elders need to be there because of the sacredness of your calling as elders over this church, and also because anyone who is involved in such a small group venture like this is going to need your encouragement because you're not going to see any fruit from the harvest for several years. And that's usually not how it works. It takes time. Secondly, who else would be on such a lab if, if any elder board were foolish enough to make me a pastor of their church and heading this thing up? Well, in most congregations that I visit here in America, I run into people who are passionately in love with their congregation and also passionate about the Great Commission. And sometimes they voice to me, an outside missionary, uh, a tension, a cognitive dissonance between the Great Commission that they believe in and the local church that they love. So if that describes any of the members of this church, those are the people that I would be interested in joining such a harvest lab to figure out how we can send out laborers into this harvest in Indianapolis. Uh, Johnny and the worship team if uh, you could begin to make your way back up to the front. Now let me speak to the rest of you, not just the elders. If you believe that the fields are white for the harvest and you want to see a greater harvest here in Indianapolis, talk to your elders about that. Also talk to us missionaries. We would love to have you join the care teams here, or possibly even our teams on the field. And if any of you has any thoughts or questions about making disciples in this place, uh, Kim and I live right across the street, and we would love to talk to you. We will ho hopefully be here, Lord willing, until next spring. In conclusion, now, <laughs> uh, Kim always has to calm me down when I speak about these things because I get too intense um, and passionate and, and sometimes people miss, I, I don't um, 
expressed a joy that's there as well as just intensity. And I want you to know that the business of the harvest is joy. Jesus said in Luke 15, 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 persons who, righteous persons who need no repentance. Every time someone comes to faith in Christ, the angels have a party. Isn't that great? Isn't that cool? I mean, how would you like to put that on your business card? I'm a party planner for angels. I love how Leslie Newbegin, a late missiologist, put it. He said, the church began as the radioactive fallout from an explosion of joy. Faith Church, let's go.